Hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I'm Sandeep Rao and you are who you are. Be yourself is what people tell you to do. But have you ever thought that something can get so damn good that it's now really bad? Um, because, you know, of course, when you're reading books, you get that themes of good and evil and it's sort of there in every book, especially um, fictional pieces or fantasy fiction or in history, there's an idea of uh, someone needs to be vanquished and someone needs to be celebrated and hero worshipped. And But if you kind of apply it uh, in today's context, right, I was just literally in shock again of course there's no point talking about it in shock because everyone's in shock all the time but it, it seems to be continuing the, the the shooting in in nashville tennessee and um i mean i'm not going to go into the details because it's it's horrific as always but it's this idea of the american dream which is all about um self betterment it's about achieving your dreams it's about getting to the top it's about the idea of a better life and having the biggest sort of experience and um it seemed to be great for years and it seemed to attract a lot of people um and and kind of pull them in into this idea of getting to that place and it gave a lot of hope for people who would escape from their whatever like despotic led country to america on the on on a boat and next thing you know they've started off from scratch and next thing they own this huge empire of grocery stores or motel motel chains or oil company whatever it could be it it was and a lot of people benefited from that indians uh south asians uh, africans and a lot of people have gone there and made it happen but um i mean there was a clear reason why people would flock to america right for whatever reason education research it seemed to be the place but that particular philosophy i think has gone and turned on itself um because things got too good for too long and as a result there's this sense of what you see right now there's this sense of uh let me create a problem in some situations because life's too easy or the other problem which is life's so damn fucking hard let me blame someone and between those two kind of extremes there's a whole lot of other stuff going on right which is this idea of selfishness this idea of being disconnected the idea of feeling lost the idea of not knowing who you are the idea of identity being manipulated the idea of so many things that are byproducts of this go getter me and my priorities and my dreams at the cost of anything else to put down others to come up to um isolate yourself from a larger community to kind of be there only for your family that would be the the really nuclear family right your kids and your wife or your husband and your wife and kids and it's it's happening of course everywhere because we kind of all seem to get in line and try to follow that 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 version of um events that we think we need to apply to various other societies and india's well on its path uh, you kind of see a strong um middle class and you see a lot of money in the economy and you see a lot of people spending and you see this same um kind of repeat 
in some sense, like you see the same conversation around the better school, the bigger house, the better car, the bigger, uh, bigger holidays, the fancier destinations, etc., etc. And I have no issue with that, man. I'm not going to, you know, preach saying materialism is bad because I, mean, I think it's nice to go on once in a while and buy yourself something. And it is that 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 need sometimes, right? Like I can buy it and I feel good as a result. But this this constant chatter around just succeeding at the cost of everything else and just my family, me and my dreams and I made it, go get her, yeah. It certainly seems to fuck a lot more people than it helps. Uh, because the ones who seem to be okay with it are the ones who are really emotionally numb and they just kind of go about it um, in, in, in a very sort of, you know, they call it zoned in, but it's a fucked up kind of, oh, you know, I, I, um, they, they are very distracted and they do a good job of hiding behind these various marketing guru kind of keywords like zoned in, I'm in synergy, I'm focused. And, but actually they're not. It's just like they're really disconnected from what they're feeling and they are just sort of going after these things. And it doesn't seem to end well if uh, you look at in a lot of situations. And I'm again, I'm not demonizing money. Uh, I'm just demonizing this idea of not knowing when to stop and not stopping at any cost uh, and creating these false sense of values to support that particular um, way of living. And as a result, creating this, this, this community that seems to be functioning on a level of connecting with each other, but actually is completely broken apart and has no sense of what people can feel comfortable in. And a sense of belonging is completely gone and a sense of um, kind of threat looms where everyone is kind of trying to protect their really fragile sense of identity and self. And as a result, you kind of go to this level of violence, this level of self uh, lack of self-worth, self-loathing and hatred. And all this comes as just my opinions and I'm not a mental health expert. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a... I am a sociologist, but not a very um, high-scoring one. But I, I, I feel just by listening to so many people, reading a little bit, I think I've arrived at this place. And I think basically anything too good for too long or even too good can kind of turn on itself and I think that's what's happening and it's fucking scary um, because again there are some great people who are really um, keyed in and they are really kind of trying to bring in you know change on various levels on an individual level on small groups level on a corporate level and I'm so glad that I um, you know get to speak to some of them and there are some others who try to understand human behavior. And I'm so glad that they agree to come on this podcast. And it really gives me a perspective sometimes that I feel maybe I I um, arrive at not fully informed. And it may that way, in, in, in that sense, appear like, you know, I, I'm narrow-minded or might have a bias or I might be uninformed. And as a result, these conversations really help me um, get a sense of what's happening you know, in the world at large with what other people are doing, how other people feel, how other people might think differently and how certain opinions and views I have might be different. And I hope people rival and challenge those. 
because that gives me a sense of actually sitting in my room at home and getting a world view and a truly global perspective on how we're going forward so i'm really thankful for that and i hope you enjoy listening to these conversations because it um, yeah it it means a lot and i really enjoy bringing it to you so having said that let me introduce today's guest cory c miller she's an expert on generation z or z however you'd like to say it and i found this conversation extremely insightful because um I'm I'm older I'm I'm as as you might know I'm 40 and I'm clearly not in generation Z maybe emotional maturity but I'm not sure and I think uh, many times we form a bias based on our age based on our social conditioning and based on the time that we grow up in and as a result we kind of look at generations that come after with a certain filter which you know I think you're entitled to but maybe off a little bit because of the various elements that were different for them uh, and for us so I thought who better than Cory to explain the 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 time in which generation Z uh grew up in what sort of shapes their behavior their their what influences the way they think and what what uh they consider as the the norm or how they look at the world and how they try to navigate the world and how cope with social change and so many other things that we kind of can dismiss saying oh it's the social media generation or it's the cell phone generation but they're just like how they are coming after us they're going to be generations going forward that come after them and that is how humanity moves forward and you know we we've heard it from our parents going oh when i was a kid it was this so I think it's essential for us to understand who came before us and who comes after because it helps understand where humanity is heading where society is kind of going down and that gives us a sense of what we can do because what happened in the past is reflecting on where we are today and what we do today will reflect on generations to come and that's where the the decisions we take when it comes to the the way we look at dialogue art technology history uh environment and just generally the idea of community and how we look at human beings uh, as individuals and as a collective and i feel that will you know help kids or our future generations and i think that the, the the decisions we take today and the 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 commitment we make and the dedication we make to our own way of living will reflect on what um is created for the generations to come and i i really um think that's important because we can really uh look at ourselves and make sure that we in some way do the right things uh to 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 kind of kind of ensure that humanity heads in the right direction and not just completely melts down and um it was really really fun talking to cory and understanding more about this generation that i was quite clueless about and had very very in some ways strong opinions about but then again i'm only human and i'm willing to accept that i don't know everything and i'm willing to talk to people who know more than me and tell me that hey you're a fucking idiot that's wrong so cory if you're listening i really appreciate you joining me and thanks for doing this and for all of you listening i really appreciate you coming in every week and listening to the soapy rao show as always take care till next episode goodbye god bless take care of yourselves cheers
Corey C. Miller, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Appreciate you being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you for a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, I think let's just sort of dive into what I um, sometimes I catch myself doing, which is by virtue of not understanding a group of people, you kind of uh, talk about them in, the, in, in, in a sense that, oh, because of them, because of what they do, we don't get them. And specifically, I think I'm referring to Gen Z, right? And maybe for people listening, um, could you sort of define the, the, the time sort of that captures this generation um, and then maybe talk about um, who they are, really are? I wouldn't say that's quite a broad question, but maybe just the time that defines this generation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you know, it's interesting. Generations are defined by birth years. And mm -hmm. other than baby boomers, which was is actually defined, and most people agree on those years, all the other generations, those years are a little slippery. So mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're kind of different on either end. But um, the, the birth years that, that usually I associate with Generation Z and the work that I do is um, born 1995 through 2010. Some have that as late as 1997 through 2012. But essentially, really, the, the gist of it is that these are our, our adolescents, our teens, our young adults, and even folks that are now going into their late 20s um, that are getting, you know, that are maybe married or having children in the workplace. So it really does span a large group of people. Right, because... Um... I mean, for me, I really don't know which generation I belong to because I, as you said, right, it's, it's, it's one of those things like zodiac signs, right? Either you make it a big deal or you just kind of live through life. But why, why do we define um, generations into these groups? Is it done for a sociological kind of purpose where you want to understand uh, and study these groups? Or is it just done because that's what we've just been doing? Or uh, is there a bigger reason um, to, this, to these kind of categorizations? Yeah, this is a great question because it, you know, generational research really stems from the idea of looking at demography, which is mm. studying a group of people that share something in common. So, you know, we have demography around gender, we have demography around where people live, geographic regions, or demography around religion. And we study groups of people because we want to learn uh, what their, most of the time, what their similarities are in terms of that in group behavior. Mm. With generations, we have a really interesting dynamic because we've got two demographic factors that are happening at the same time. One of them is age mm. and one of them is life stage. So it depends on when you study a generation as to what's going to happen. Certainly looking at, um, I'm a Gen Xer, looking at me in my kind of midlife is really different than if you were to go back in time and look at me as a teenager and the kind of behaviors that Gen Xers did when we were teens, pre-cell phone, pre-internet, you know, but it all stems from this idea of this concept of peer personality, which is when people share some type of identity, they have a, a, sometimes a common language, common experiences, and sometimes end up seeing the world similarly in ways because of those common experiences and language and even values that, that come from it. So, you know, being a Gen Xer, for instance, I grew up with both my parents going back to work. We were the first generation that had the influx of of dual parents, you know, were in the workforce. Therefore, Generation X has been labeled like the latchkey kids. It doesn't mean that mm. everyone in Gen X was a latchkey kid. It just means this was sort of a defining kind of component of what my generation looked like when I was a kid. Mm. That in turn shaped the way that I see the world and how I navigate all the way up now, even through the workplace. I can see that the things that I do now are 
you know, stem from this idea of being a latchkey kid. I'm really independent. I don't want like heavy supervision. I, I don't want, a, you know, someone breathing down my neck at work and asking me for things. But that's because my peer personality as a Gen Xer was shaped at such a young age that I've carried that with me. And so when we look at generations, we look at these peer personalities and we look at how they evolve over time. Yeah, but that's very interesting because, you know, um, I want to understand more about what we do with this information. But, you know, just to make an observation about um, uh, India, like, you know, post-independence, but I'm saying even up to like the late 80s and early 90s, there was heavy restriction on imports and big brands and also the amount of um, just generally money was not available as as much as it is today and you see that generation of people being a lot more um, work operating a lot more from a scarcity mindset right that things are not going to be there so you you kind of end up I wouldn't say hoarding but um, just the thing is the approach to life is that you know what we're not we're going to save more we're not going to be as extravagant but now you look at the generation I wouldn't say generation but people today uh, across the board across demographies across uh, social class it's a lot more, um, you know what, I'm going to just borrow and live big, bigger than my means. Mm-hmm. And that's um, and that's sort of, um, I mean, does this information we have, like from studying Gen Y, Gen X or millennials, um, can we forecast what the next generation is going to be like? Or can we, sh- uh, so what do we do with this data? Do we shape them? I mean, culturally, um, say from, you know, even things like music or books or education programs, um, or maybe say corporate programs, like who are you going to get in the future? So are people manipulating future generations or are people understanding them or are people preparing for them? So what is being done with this? Yeah, well, you know, as you bring up your example, you talk about the scarcity mentality and, mm-hmm. and you can also, you can look at, at global events, you can look at national and even local events and, and um, situations that were occurring that shape that mm-hmm. peer personality. I just finished a global study where we we had 81 countries participate around the world. And we looked to see if there was there were similarities in some of the perspectives. And we found that there are a lot more similarities because the world has become more global. And so now we're being able to define more of a global peer personality of Generation Z than ever before. Because they're experiencing so many things at the same time, the pandemic and, you know, the proliferation of the smartphone, those kinds of things. But as you're talking about, you know, what do we do with this information? A a lot of it's just helpful in understanding um, how something might impact the behavior of a group of people. So, for instance, you know, we can learn from history. We can we can learn from the fact that, you know, we saw the Great Recession Global recession hit many, many countries around the world in 2008, 2009. Millennials were kind of promised this, you know, if you go to college or if you invest in your education, you're going to get this great job. And and a lot of them didn't or they lost their jobs. And so there's the skepticism of this kind of big business is going to take care Mm -hmm. of me if I just train for it. And so, but because we know that, and we know that that might've been how that impacted millennials at the time, we know that if we're coming upon another recession, that might be the impact on young people who are coming out of, you know, high school and college at that time. So it's in some ways it's, it's informative, right. Mm. Um, And gives us kind of a script, right. They say history repeats itself, but we can, we can learn from it as we see similar things, you know, certainly look at the pandemic. If we were to ever have a pandemic again, we would we would know certainly how that would affect, you know, young people who, you know, had to you know jump online to go to school. You know, we would now know the impact of that. So part of it is that it's informative. 
The other part of that that's really interesting is I was actually in a, um, a session the other day. I went to a festival of books and I was listening to an author panel and they were talking about what they write into books has a profoundly different impact based on generation. And they were discussing the topic of mental health. And they said, mm-hmm. one author was talking about how she wrote in the book that one of the characters went and saw a therapist. And the feedback she got from the older readers was, why did she go to a therapist? She didn't need to go to a therapist and air her dirty laundry. And then the younger readers were like, oh, I'm so glad she went to a therapist and mm-hmm. identified her mental health needs. And so part of it is is this idea that, too, that we can capture the essence of generational differences in our real-time like lived experiences. So authors are literally changing their books, embracing maybe new ways of seeing the world, not as a way to kind of manipulate or conjure up experiences for people, but to just reflect back societal changes that are occurring. And so I think it's a little bit of both. It's there's some historical or informative nature of it, but I also think it's just straight reflection of who people are um, across different generations. And, you know, that's quite fascinating because sometimes what happens is like, say, you know, I was born in 1982, but I still will read Mark Twain or I'll read P.G. Woodhouse or I'll read, um, say, Roald Dahl because I read about something in the, in that the French uh, public pu- publishers are doing with this book. But um, even though they're very different times and very different language, it was the story that shaped a lot of ideas I have of a certain generation, right? Like um, Huckleberry Finn. I mean, I'm never, I'm never going to get a chance to go back to that America and uh, um, experience what he did or what Mark Twain wrote about it. But still, it gives me some sense of an experience which I can probably, um, I don't know what I can do with it, but it's still there. And, you know, it's sometimes, it's a story which builds this sort of idea and imagination in your head. Um so while generations are different, and you know, you mentioned that, you know, your generation, both the parents worked. So maybe what you did as a result is maybe you worked harder to make sure that your kids have your, um, I mean, either the father or mother at home or both parents at home. So sometimes what a generation does to overcompensate for what they went through affects the next generation. And um, do you see a lot of that happening? Because I feel... Uh, Gen Z or Generation Z or Z, but we call it, is is dealing with a lot of the actions which were set out to be good, but the consequences aren't always uh, positive in this situation or negative. I don't know. But you try to do something to protect the next generation, but it ends up backfiring. Is that a right observation? Yeah, that's actually a really keen observation. Um I co-authored a book called Generation Z, A Century in the Making, Mm -hmm. and it looked back at the last hundred years of generational changes. And one of the things that we came upon was the influence of the parental generation. And so one of the starkest differences that you've been able to see is, is we call them like the pendulum swingers. It's where one generation says, I don't like the way that I was raised. I'm going to do completely opposite. Mm. And then another generation says, I love the way I was raised. I'm going to do exactly the same. The Some of the most notable ones are, and again, not all all people in one generation have all parents of another, but typically we call them a parental generation where the majority of the parents are in that generation. So for instance, um, a number of millennials had baby boomer parents, not exclusively. I had one baby boomer parent and one silent generation parent, but had baby boomer parents. Now, if you go back and, and you you see, you know, millennials have been told they're the me, me, me generation, or they've been given trophies or everybody wins. Mm. That came from the fact that baby boomers didn't have that. And they had almost complete opposite of that, where it was, you know, competitive. It was, you know, 
in some ways their parents were children should be seen and not heard. And so they never wanted to raise their kids that way. So they gave their kids a a voice and they gave their kids all these opportunities because they wanted to, I don't know that they, they thought at the time they were overcompensating. I think they thought that they were balancing it out. So then you have that, the, the millennials being raised very differently. Now on another note, you have a situation with Gen Xers who are the parental generation of Gen Zers. Now, Something that's happened with with that that generation is Gen Xers are retreating back to a lot of the ways in which they were raised and raising Gen Zers, letting them go back out and walk to school, ride their bikes, some of the less protective measures. I used to walk to school. You can walk to school or I don't need to to argue with your coach that you didn't get to play on the team. I didn't get to play on the team. And so a lot of them are raising their kids to, to almost grow up just like they did, except for the time in history is different. Like we Mm. have smartphones and we have internet and we have, you know, all this technology and pandemics. And so it's not quite the same. So it it really just depends, but you can see trends and it's very interesting to watch. Um, and, And what I'll be fascinated to see is as we study generation alpha, which are the little ones right now, whose primary parental generation are millennials is to see how they're raising alphas. Are they raising them more like them or maybe more like what they wish they would have had from their parents? Yeah, because you want to, uh, as a collective and also as an individual, you want to kind of prep your child or the the next generation for what's to come. And many times you do that with the best intention. Um, and but you can't really tell where this goes, right? Like, for instance, you want to take something as relevant as Chat GPT, which is out there right now, and AI-powered tools, which are, you know, um, seeming to threaten a lot of people, but seeming also to give a lot of people hope because it's the next stage of technological evolution, which is going to so-called aid our progress, right? I don't know how much more progress we want, but <laughs> it's one of those things that people are talking about. So as a result, post-pandemic, um, and also there's a present war in Ukraine, which are um, both sh- big global events and, of course, the, the, the global warming and climate change, which are kind of the premise or the, the, the kind of the background on this canvas that we're going to sort of paint the future picture of. And, of course, the people in the Ukraine, like, say, the kids or the young adults are definitely not going to have the same perspective as, you know, young adults or children in America or India even. So... Um, I don't even really have a question for this, but what what um, what happens is, what are the things that a parent or a person can do? Because, as you said, you know, I would like my, my my child to run around on the beach and um, be more with nature, and not just be locked up in an apartment on an iPad. But as you said, the the, the thing is, the the situation is that schools are going to be online, or learning is going to be online. So you have to kind of, I, I wouldn't say marry the ideas, but kind of also just have a bit of sense to, to to kind of take yourself out of the situation, but also look at it with a broader kind of perspective and say, you know what, this is what I want, but this is also the reality of the situation. So how does someone navigate um, dealing with things that still haven't really played out? Right. Well, I mean, and that's all about the context. You know, as I go back to that example of Gen Xers raising Gen Zers to say, I want you to go out and play. I don't want you to sit on your device. I want you to feel safe. I don't want you to worry about, you know, getting kidnapped. And I'm not going to worry about that. The reality is, is that that's not necessarily the world we live in. So while they can have those aspirational values, they also have to assess the context of, of the things that are going on around them. 
Um, for instance, like saying, I really want my child to not have social media accounts. So I'm not going to let him or her have a social media account until they're 18. But the reality is, is that kid is then going to like sneak a social media account, do things behind their back. And so, because the reality is, is that such a dominating force of our culture today. So I think what, what really needs to happen is just is particularly those that are influencing younger people is to just have a really good grasp on reality and trying to find ways to to blend all of it. So that's where things like, okay, yeah, you can have a social media account, you can be online, but like, let's, let's go out for a walk today together. Mm. And so it's, everything becomes more transparent because, you know, one thing that people always ask me is how do you know if Gen Z is behaving like Gen Z or they're just behaving like young people would always have behaved. Yeah. yeah, And, and so the reality is, is young people will, are defiant, especially in adolescent development, they're pushing back and they're challenging the norms. And so, you know, as someone who thinks that they know best, which they probably do in some ways, um, they also just have to be aware of the context of the fact that young people are going to be young people. And the more that you can have a better idea of what reality looks like and try to meet them where they're at, that's going to be better served for everybody. Right. And that's absolutely fair, I think, right? You can't deny a teenager the teenage experience, but um, mm-hmm. But I feel um, maybe I'm sounding very old when I say this, but there's a lot that Gen mm-hmm. Z is dealing with because of the social change that has happened, that has transpired over the past, say, even three, four years, right? Pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, with all aspects of life, with technology, with uh, education, with gender, with sexuality. And there are so many things that, um, you know, I mean, that each thing in itself can be, you know, a podcast series, not just an episode. But uh, what are some of the things that you've observed uh, before we talk about um, the things that you're doing and observing on a a, a sort of in an academic setting? uh, What are some of the major, um, I wouldn't say issues, but major kind of um, talking points that Generation Z is dealing with that the previous generations didn't have to? Yeah, well, and I think you bring you bring up a really a really good point too, because you know when we're looking at current events and we're looking at context and we're looking at big things like global pandemics. Um, I was in my forties when the pandemic hit. I mm-hmm. had a lot of life experience underway. I, I not that I knew how to handle it because no one did, but I feel yeah. like I was in a better situation than my fifth grade daughter who didn't know. You know, she was like ten and didn't really know what was going on. Um, and so, you know, part of that is all, is just kind of understanding these these world events that are happening around us, and and knowing that again, we're just more globally connected than we have ever been before. And so, yeah. something like as you're talking about all the things you're talking about, those aren't isolated anymore. I mean, think about it: a hundred years ago, um, you know, it was before we even had automobiles. And, you know, people couldn't even leave their neighborhoods. So you didn't know what was happening down the street. And now we know what's happening all over the world in in an instant. And so Gen Zers are carrying that weight of the world on them. I mean, Mm. when I was young, I had an encyclopedia. I could read about topics, but I didn't get news feeds every day about how, you know, global warming is going to kill us and about politicians doing this and about the pandemic doing that. And so they're just, it's a heavy weight for them to, to have on them. And, um, and so how are the, they're, they're, 
how are they navigating? I mean, it's interesting. They've got a lot of the the emotional and mental health pressures that young people have just by virtue of making friends or fear of failure in school and all that stuff. But then they're also worried about the fact that you know, our, you know, our planet might be dying and like, you know, people are not being inclusive and creating really restrictive laws and policies and 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 they see it every single day. And so there it's been, you know, for many of them, it's it's hard to navigate um because it's just over I guess it's just overpowering of the information, but for others, it's really kind of created a, a fire in their bellies to go do something. And I think that's the, the, that's the positive side of all of this. Yeah, because it just sounds, uh, I'm trying to put myself in it, back as a teenager in today's time. And yeah, even just being a 13, 14, 15, 16 year old, whatever it is, you just, want to be a part of something bigger than you right you want to be accepted you want to be validated and i can only imagine how hard or scary it is for someone going you know what beyond just finding someone you know who finds me attractive i have to save the world you know it's it's kind of, right it's quite a big <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> and this i read this article i'm sure you you come across some form of it or um, basically how a lot of these children or young adults are are basically giving up on their youth at a younger age. They're not being mm-hmm. so kind of, you know, happy-go-lucky. They're not sort of so free-spirited. They're like, no, no, I, I need to be more secure with my job. I need to, I need to, you know, I don't know the various aspects of it uh, in detail, but it's like they, they're becoming much more responsible and becoming adults at a much younger age. Is that a true um, uh, sort of sign of, 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 of them? Yeah, well, and, and yes, and that was the trajectory pre-pandemic for sure, was this mm-hmm. idea that, like, I need to save the world. I mean, you start looking at how many, you know, young kids, teenagers are freelancing, they've got their own businesses, they're nonprofits, they're inventing things. Um, when I was that age, I was playing with my friends after school and going to, like, basketball practice. like that. Yeah. And I'm a real go-getter, and I didn't know anybody who was doing that, and this is becoming more of the norm. Yeah. Um, the interesting part about that is they be, were becoming more kind of professionally and socially engaged at a younger age. The pandemic did set back a lot of young people emotionally and mentally mm-hmm. in their development. And so you have these, you know, you have a 15-year-old that has their own business, but doesn't have a lot of the social skills perhaps to run that business because of, you know, there's a lot of other factors in Gen Z for having um, lower social competence, but the the pandemic certainly didn't help. And so now you've got this like one generation that's off the charts on this professional kind of career, save the world trajectory, you know, being an adult at a young age. But then the other side of them is is going into adulthood developmentally later because the pandemic set them back socially, educationally, and so forth. And I think the best the best thing to to know for all of this is we'll probably figure it out in about 10 years when we look back and see who these people have become um, when they're trying to go, they're trying to go Uber speed into adulthood, but still lingering way back in childhood, even more so than maybe a non-pandemic cohort would have. And that's, that's a strange thing, right? You have someone who can um, like a whiz kid. I mean, I would say most, most if not all people in this generation are just fantastic right like they can you give them a computer they can really make magic happen right like it's like wow but uh as 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 you mentioned emotionally uh if they don't like something if they're rejected then they want to cancel someone they it's almost like you know it doesn't suit me 
get it out of my face kind of thing. But that also is leading to a lot of, of mental health issues, like people aren't resilient. They, uh, the, the generation is finding it hard to cope. And as a result, leading to a lot of very, very unfortunate uh, situations from depression to even suicide. So uh, how can someone help? Like what what, what are the social, the, the social, how, how can a parent or a friend or someone older help? Um, because these are a lot of children I mean, they don't have an option, right? Because social media is a part of it. Phones are a part of it. So how how some of the things they can, what are some of the things they can do to help them navigate the social incompetence without saying, oh, you you, you kids these days. <laughs> <laughs> right, that doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, I end up talking to a lot of educators and I talk a lot about um, <clears throat> this um, the use of group work, you know, mm-hmm. if you remember in schools, I, maybe, you know, you had, I know I had it a lot in school. It was like, okay, well circle up with a couple of people around you. And I want you to talk about this, or I want mm-hmm. you to work on this group project. Um, we weren't really taught how to work in groups because we grew up in an era in which our only way to have any kind of social interaction was typically in person with other people in groups. And we just sort of learned on the job. Um, Gen Z has less exposure to that. There's been studies that say that they just frankly spend less time outside of school with their friends in person. Um, And so they're getting a lot less practice. And so when we, particularly in educational settings, say, okay, well, just, you know, you're going to get in a group project and just go do the assignment. um, That's very intimidating for a lot of them because they don't know how to act in a group. They don't know how necessarily how to communicate, to, to confront someone if it's something isn't going the way they want, to be able to, um, you know, follow through on their responsibility. A lot of those things they haven't been taught. So what ends up happening is they don't really end up liking groups very much and they don't like interacting with people. So they retreat and they get online and it becomes kind of a, a cyclical thing. And this is, again, not everyone in Gen Z. There's a lot of people that are in Gen Z that don't fit this. But kind of yeah. culturally, if you look at this, um, this phenomenon, this is really calling for us as you know, educators, parents, coaches, whoever it might be, to spend more intentional time helping kids develop the skills to interact with other people. That means things like role-playing conversations with them, getting them into groups and maybe an educational setting and telling them, okay, so for today, before you even start on your assignment, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about, everybody's going to go around in a circle and talk about what are their expectations for how often you communicate when you're working on this project, like outside of school. These are things that most of us kind of learned on the job, but um, just simply with less practice, they don't have them. So, I think the part behind it is being really intentional. The second part is simply having them have more interpersonal interaction. Um, And that might mean face-to-face if that's possible. It could even just be on video, Um, but it's different than than digital messaging. And um, being able to actually have those those engagements are really important um, and fundamental. So they need the, the training and they need the practice. But do but you know the strange thing, which I think makes a lot of sense. What you just said, I mean, um, because that's something that is so easily uh, avoided nowadays, right? Like it's so easy to say, "Hey, I'm not going to meet anyone. I just rather sit on my uh, computer phone, watch Netflix, and um, spend the evening." But making an effort to be, uh, you know, whether it's with family or friends, it, it is an effort. But do you do you know? I mean, do you, is this something you've noticed? Where um, yes, it's really important. For, for for these um, young adults and teenagers to be pushed out there to say, you know what, go go meet, go meet people physically. But 
do you, is it that the case that even adults like people in their their parents maybe are just lazy to meet people that like, ah let's just chill at home so it's it's not just the 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 problem where the 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 youngsters today are are drawn in by social media and all these um online communities but it's almost like instead of the parents pushing them to say let's go make more physical experiences in the real world they are also being absorbed by these um tools is that is that happening oh yeah yeah i mean the only difference um you know that i say with things like people talk about you know cell phone addiction and the word addiction i'm using very loosely and not mm. clinically um yeah you know, it's like these young people won't get off their phones. And I I will always turn the, the camera on them and say, you're not getting off your phone. Like, yeah. like, we're all sucked in by this. The only difference was, is that I didn't do that when I was 16, because we didn't yeah. have that. Yeah. Um, and so I do remember a time in which we didn't have that. So I could toggle between both worlds pretty easily, right. um, which is different for someone who's always grown up with it. But I'm just a suspect to it. I'm on social media. I'm on online all the time. I'm surfing the internet. So, you know, I'm in a, it used to be, you could go sit in a waiting room at a doctor's office and you might talk to the person next to you. Now everybody's on their phones. Yeah. I do it too. And so I think the, it's a challenge for everyone and there's nothing wrong with screens and social media. I, I, I mean, it's just like anything. I, too much of anything, even if it's good for you, it ends up not being good for you. So it's mm. all about balance. Um, and so I'm, I'm really referring to people who are just, you know, inundated with, you know, this screen time, but certainly screen time actually helps. So as a matter of fact, there have been some really great studies about how social media is really helpful for kids who are, you know, pretty isolated and shy, um, who mm. aren't getting out there or don't have an opportunity to meet people or may have a, an identity that they are, you know, and aren't sharing or aren't comfortable sharing with the people in their own neighborhoods and schools, they can find solidarity, comfort and friendship online. And so I want to acknowledge that that's a real important, a real important designator for this generation is that they have those kinds of links. Um, Imagine, you know, someone struggling with their sexual orientation in 1980, had very different resources and connections than someone who might be questioning their sexual orientation in, you know, 2023. So right. So there are really there are some some good points to it, but I, but really the key to it is all about diversity of the balance of how of how those interactions are happening, so that our young people can also toggle between face to face Zoom, you know, digital text communication and so forth. Right, because it seems like um, when you put it in that in that context, it seems like there are a lot more options that this generation has that than than you did or I did. Because like, hey, you know, you're not being, you're not fitting in uh, with your classmates, then you can find a community online uh, that will welcome you and think. But to just play devil's advocate here, do you feel as a result of this where you find just that perfect group that you can fit into, your level of resilience reduces and as a result, you just want more and more of the world around you to shape and suit that group that you belong to? Yeah, I think, and I think that's something that's happening across all generations. Mm. It's interesting because if you look at as politics in many countries around the world has become more and more divisive, and you know, yeah. particularly in the United States where I'm from, it is so divisive. And what's happening is people are getting on and finding, um, you know, social media groups. They're finding only they're only friending people that have their same values and views, and mm. it's making it not only a lack of resilience, but it's also making it a lack of diverse perspectives and being able to kind of check your own kind of oftentimes very extreme perspectives. And so it's a phenomenon that's affecting us all. And again, the difference is, is that I might only have that 
for 20 or 30 years of my lifespan, whereas a Gen Zer might have that for 70 years of their lifespan. So think about just the force of that. Mm. Um, you know, so I do have a sense of resilience already built up or an ability to be able to be a little bit more critical of what I hear and see on social media or the ability to seek out other perspectives, like watching different news channels. Um, I, I come from a, a history of when that I've done that. So now I know to do that. And, but that isn't really the norm now. And it's becoming harder and harder to challenge that. And I think for young people, it's especially difficult. So yeah, so they can seek inclusion and comfort in their communities online, but they're also not necessarily, you know, having to kind of confront the diversity or the difficulty or challenge of showing up in their maybe uncomfortable real life. Mm -hmm. uh, but I say that too, with a grain of salt too, because you know, there's a way that, you know, having young people find that support is also doing things like preventing suicides. It's also preventing bullying. So there are some, even though it might be decreasing resilience from having to kind of face, you know, face the differences and face other people um, and face that failure, you know, that is definitely the downside. The upside is, is that it could potentially be saving some lives. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. I think not everyone has to sort of go through the boxing ring to become a stronger person. But um, I'm very interested to kind of, you know, just fast forward right now to 10 years in the future. And, and, and what, what, what will these, what will this generation sort of ensure in the next generation, right? Because there's so many <laughs> things that are elements that are interesting, which can lead to really, really positive change, but can also go the other way. But I think, you work in a very interesting space, which is the almost like a um, a, sm a smaller version of society, right? Like because our schools, our colleges, our universities end up kind of reflecting what the generation is, but also what the generation to come looks like, right? Uh, when, mm -hmm. and, and you might have to plan for this with your curriculum, with your programs on campus. And uh, right now, from my limited knowledge, I'm going to be very honest about it. I mean, I just <laughs> read articles, or I listen to a couple of podcasts, but uh, it seems that there's a big sort of disconnect between universities and, if you want to call it, quote unquote, the real world, because uh, the real world being jobs or um, society at large. But is that is that true? Because you, you, you hear a narrative going on. Um, with students on campus and then when they come out it's like and I don't it, it's not nice but it's almost like a them versus us when you hear it from people outside universities is that is that something that's um, you know a false uh, observation or is that happening in your experience you know I think a lot of things are you know happening uh, in terms of kind of the university as a microcosm mm. you know in one sense <laughs> Um, it used to be that the uni universities would lead kind of the world in research, innovation, new thinking, new ideas, and students who would go mm. um, <clears throat> became kind of privy to being the leaders of the future because th that's where the forward thinking was taking place. I mean, it's yeah. just by nature the fact that you're literally paying faculty to do research and to think about the future. Um, and I think, it, you know, <coughs> it's become a little bit more... Um, divisive lately it mm. used i mean it, it's very interesting to see that you know it didn't used to be that higher education was so divisive it was something that everybody every political ideology people thought was a good thing to have whether you yeah. did you went or you didn't they thought it was a good idea for society in the last you know probably 10 years we've been getting a lot more pushback i know particularly in the united states but in some other countries too where it's this idea of like uh, wait a minute why 
why are we paying, you know, the government? Why are we the people paying for other people to get educated and get good jobs? Why, what is the real value of this? And now there's this, you know, there's a movement on, you know, this idea that uh, there's an indoctrination that happens in higher education and people are coming out with these, you know, very diverse perspectives of attitudes of inclusion that are just not going to be okay or acceptable in the, the society that we want to create. And that is becoming a really interesting phenomenon to watch. Um, <clears throat> so it's it's definitely creating a rift. Now, businesses, usually the, the biggest concern that businesses have had around um, colleges is really about this idea of preparation. Mm. Um I need a workforce that can do X, but you're producing a workforce that can do Y. Yeah. And that's, I mean, there, you know, I do a lot of work on studying leadership competency development of college students. And it's interesting that just the preparation levels, um, it seems like colleges are on the mark and then these students graduate and they are just so ill-prepared to go into their fields. Is mm. that a function of the student? Is that a function of the the preparation program in the university? Is that a function of the, the organization itself that's hiring. And, there, you know, it's probably a little bit of all of those things. So for businesses, I think that's where the rift is. For the <clears throat> the, pub, the public, it's really the question is around the value of higher education for society, because now in some places it's seen as like, get rid of it, shut it down. This is causing mm. a lot of, you know, you know, a lot of perspectives that that aren't in alignment with where we want to go. So it's it's interesting to watch, especially since it's been particularly this this kind of rift um, around philosophy and perspectives has really been emerging in the last like ten years. So I, I think that's something we're going to keep an eye out for, um, per, especially around you know various countries that are at different stages of that. Yeah, because you know. Um... The U.S. universe, the, the higher education system, is something that a lot of people around the world aspire to sort of uh, go through. Because whether it's, um, I mean, whatever the the discipline is, right? Because it's something that they really, and I mean, if you go back many more years, university is something you really wanted to do, and you would work hard for it. People would take a loan, and people are in debt to finish it off. And people now, of course, you know, get an MBA from Harvard. All these things are big, and of course, in India now. Uh, there's, there's a line across the world. You know, people are, um, you know, every every second person in, in in India is an MBA graduate. I don't know what they're doing with <laughs> it, but it's one of those things um, where it becomes more of a label than what you actually studied or learned or what you experienced and the research and and so now do you feel like it's more of a status thing that oh I went to university I'm a you know I got a bachelor's or I got a master's or I got a PhD. Um, I I know I'm not trivializing university, but um, what what do you do as an educator or someone who's seeing groups come in and go out? And what where do you start with redesigning a program or addressing the current program and looking at what you can do with it? Well, you know what you you talked about in there was you know this idea of something called signaling theory, and signaling mm. theory is this idea that. It doesn't really matter what you did, but as long as you did it, you signal to someone that you are worth something else. Mm. So a college degree is a perfect example of a signaling theory. It almost in some ways for some fields, not all, some yeah. fields, it doesn't even matter what you you got your degree in. As yeah. long as you made it through college, you signal to an employer that you have persistence, that you have independence, that you have follow through. And those are all the things employers are looking for. So it doesn't really matter what you studied. You signal to them that you have done these things and that you are somehow have these particular skills. So, you know, that is an important 
important, you know, kind of modifier to what we're talking about. Now, certainly as you go up and you say, I'm an MBA or whatever it is, you're signaling obviously even, even greater level of, you know, these kinds of skill sets. Um, you know, so there's two parts of really kind of, as you're looking at redesigning, maybe a college program, one is, you know, the, the, the competencies that you need to be able to persist through the program that would signal to someone outside of the university setting that you can do X, Y, and Z. So again, like the things I was talking about, persistence and, you know, follow through, you want to make sure that you have a program, maybe having an internship will signal that um, someone has the ability to go work off site and get experience on their own and have independence. You signal by having a a portfolio requirement that someone can reflect on their own work. Um, Those kinds of things are important to be able to signal to other people that someone has done, regardless of what the content is. But the second part of it really is this idea of, you know, what is the up and coming content? And I think it's important for um, colleges and universities, you know, to be very in tune with what their feeder occupations really need, Um, especially in some occupations where we have a shortage. Uh, What are the critical components that we need? I know in the United States, we have shortages of nurses, we have shortages of teachers. Um, And instead of lowering the standards and just pushing people through is being really mindful about bringing people in that will that you have the capability of training on those very critical skills. Um, and then, you know, having them go into the workforce. So part of it is the signaling of the of the just the general skills it takes. And then the other part of it is really making sure that that content is that content's got to be forward thinking. You can't train people to do procedures that, you know, we don't even do in medical fields anymore. Or um, I remember taking a computer science class and I thought, why am I taking this computer science class? This whole computer program is going to be different in one year. And it was. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. a black screen with a green flashing cursor. Would I yeah. have been better served to learn about the fundamentals of computer science? and how coding works and the things that are going on behind it so that no matter what program I used in the future, I would have a leg up on being able to understand and transition to that. So I think getting out of these very static here, you need to learn this one thing, but really being able to learn the learning behind it can also help people become kind of lifelong learners and be able to go into organizations and keep, you know, kind of getting, being a sponge of new information. And, you know, someone like you is not just isolated in university. You kind of, you, you see the bigger picture, right? So as a result, you have to, um, you know, take that into consideration. But, uh, you know, the thing is when you um, kind of just look at university life or what goes on there, you, you, you it's, very, it's very important, of course, because you're helping uh, future students in the future workforce, but you lose um, sense of what is happening in real time in the real world. I mean, excuse the word real but i'm saying that's how it's referred to but Mm -hmm. uh you know that right now we have information everywhere uh how you process that information is up to you but and also how you get that information is up to you but so when you have uh things where you have tools to learn online whether it's computer code or whether it's how to uh, be a graphic designer or how to even get certification as a therapist. Everything is there online and everything's there at a click of a button. So as a university, of course, that was the center for learning and that was sort of the the pride the university would hold saying, you come here to get knowledge that no one else can give you. But that's clearly changing. So uh, how, how, how do you, um, of course, you mentioned uh, what you can do for the programs, but do you see a time where people can get the information on their own, kind of like a remote model, but get the way to interpret that information at a university or some 
institution that resembles that. Is is that something that is happening? Yeah, well, you know, and as we go back to thinking about Generation Z, they've often been referred to as the do-it-yourself or the DIY generation yeah. because they don't really have the patience to wait to take a class in six months on a topic they're interested in. They'll just Google something or watch a few YouTube videos about it mm. and teach themselves. And, um, and you know, and that's becoming more um, kind of more common among older generations too. Like I don't have the patience to like wait and go to a workshop on campus or wait and get a degree. The the thing that universities will continue to have a holdover on people is that they still possess the ability to award a credential that does have value. So um, that's kind of what they're leaning on because yes, you can get that information in other places. It's not vetted the same way um, and you don't know that it's legitimate or coming from a credible source. But yeah. there are a lot of legitimate and credible things that are out there. I've taken <clears throat> classes through like, you know, those like edX or, you know, yeah. you know, those like big MOOCs and things. Excellent information taught by university professors. I paid $39 yeah. and I took a hundred hour course. And so, you know, I know higher education is really grappling with what are these, you know, kind of external micro credentials and micro trainings look like and the availability of information that used to be in some ways proprietary. Um, and it's not so much that anymore. And so I think, um, you know, the way that higher education survives is to be able to embrace that rather than kind of fight it. And, yeah. you know, there's a bunch of models that could possibly be useful. And I, you know, it's hard because higher education, at least in the United States right now, um, is struggling with, you know, decreases in enrollment in a lot of schools after the pandemic, right. you know, cuts in funding, cuts in staffing. So being innovative is one of those things that just kind of got chopped right off. It's like people are in survival mode. Um, but I do think that a new model of higher education is really necessary um, to be able to continue to to thrive, because one of the things that college campuses offer that you don't get when you are online, whether you're doing it, you know, you're doing remote education or you're you're doing your own DIY education, is the campus experience. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people will say being on a physical campus, if they can go in person. And again, I teach online, so I find a lot of value in remote learning, but there is something about that interpersonal dynamic that happens, you know, on a college campus. It might be in the United States going to the football game. It might be, you know, going to your, you know, a campus coffee shop and meeting with a bunch of students or just sitting in your library. And that that is a transformative experience in and of itself. And so place is something that universities can continue to offer um, and so what you're talking about, an idea of maybe learning somewhere else and coming to a place like a college campus that has, you know, whether that's classrooms or informal learning environments or just frankly the space to just be, um, to, to reflect and to, you know, kind of process that information, it, you know, could be a great model. I don't know of any institutions that are widely doing that in a way that I would know about, but I, I certainly think that the movement towards something like that and other types of models of integrated learning are going to be critical for higher education to continue to thrive. And, you know, that's the, the thing that, um, I'm, I, I'm, when I look back, I did my undergrad in the U.S. And, you know, if you ask me the, 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 what I learned, not much. <laughs> I mean, because I, was, <laughs> I wasn't a good student. I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, I wasn't an interested student. I would just get by, right? I would just do what I needed to do to get by. But the physical interaction with, be it the professors, be it my, um, the person who's my advisor, or the more important uh, long-term relations, which are my friends, um, mm -hmm. and, and I think that I, I can't really name them as a skill set, the things I did there, but in hindsight, yeah, you know, how to live alone, 
even you know for someone like uh you know when, when i went from india I'd, i'd never done my own laundry or i'd you know never sort of gone grocery shopping and cooked right because everything was provided for you and i know when i did those things whether it's that or the job on campus where i had to go put you know put mulch everywhere and clean up dried leaves yeah they're not really definitive skills that will take you far in life but it gives me a sense of independence a sense of that you know what you can do these things sense of discipline and these are um, i feel very very valuable things to kind of hold um, you know and hold on to because you know you kind of come back and uh, you come back to a family environment where everything's provided for but you realize that you know what the, the world can be a place which you can make for yourself uh, as opposed to just going with the flow and those those relationships the way to interact with people to also kind of be um, able to fend for yourself stand up for maybe what you believe in or know when to sort of give uh, give way the, these are things i think which are so um, i wouldn't say subtle but they are things that you don't really go to university for you don't put it on your resume but i think it really gets you uh, farther in life than than just saying you know what i'm an engineer yeah i mean absolutely and that it goes back to even when i was talking about before about young people who have, you know have literally logged less hours with hanging out with their friends after school are at a deficit of just those those social skills the ability to kind of navigate through conflict and the things that come up by just virtue of hanging out with friends making a joint decision about something yeah. um and those are the same kind of things you're talking about these you know kind of soft skills i work in leadership so you know we we call them leadership self leadership skills the ability to create boundaries to make your own schedules do your own laundry i mean that's a technical skill but it's also a skill of critical thinking i'm running out of clothing i better make time to go do my laundry so you're 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 using critical thinking and decision making skills you're assessing how long something will take and then you're going and you're doing it so you have follow through it's not just doing laundry you're doing all of these other skills to make that laundry happen and those are really invaluable and that's when i go back to the signaling thing it's having that experience of signaling to someone like i figured it out on my own like if yeah. i work for you 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 can bet that if i don't know how to do something i'm going to figure it out on my own because i did it before with laundry and it seems yeah. like it's an irrelevant connection but it's not and you know and then capitalize on that for multiple years that you're in a college setting and you have made your own decisions around what you're going to eat and where you're going to go and who you're going to hang out with and whether you go to class and those are skills that are going to get you really far in the workplace even if you can't identify exactly what they are absolutely like you know the thing is i remember like when i had like 10 dollars left before my parents said more money i'm like should i buy food for 10 dollars that will last me a few days or should i buy a six pack of beer and i would always buy the six pack of beer i never learned the <laughs> 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 next morning wake up and you're like oh i should have just bought something but you know one thing which is beyond the university thing and uh, when when i went to uh, the small little liberal arts college in oregon um it was in a small town and the town wasn't like the university or the college right the town was a lot smaller town in america there were people like going hunting and fishing and um i don't know what kind of industry was there but i remember making it a point because i had a sri lankan friend with me and we would go uh, of course you know a couple of uh, american friends as well who would go to this local dive bar where there were only white people playing pool listening to say garth brooks and that kind of country kind of music <laughs> dive bar and we you know technically you know i i've seen indian um, family and friends who go later on in life to the us for work right and they have this idea like oh you know i i i don't really go to those places you know it's it's racism and they use all these words and of course i'm not denying the fact that it exists but when 
uh, we first went and we'd get these kind of strange looks. But at the end of the night, we're putting in money into the jukebox. We're listening to Garth Brooks or listening to Brad Paisley. And, <laughs> and what is nice is that after we broke that initial kind of um, hesitation from from both sides, there was a lot more to sort of bond over, right? Because you have that hesitation that makes you think that you're different, they are different. But there's actually a lot more um, to talk about once you break that. And I found that really, really um, fun. And I think that's important for especially international students going there to kind of get past that. Then you get an idea of, you know, um, the them versus us reduces the gap, I think. Yeah, and I think that's important with, you know, kind of any, as we go back, we circle back around to this idea of demography, right, is mm. that we have these kind of shared experiences, this peer personality. And sometimes we're afraid that that peer personality isn't going to mesh with another's mm-hmm. um, for legitimate reasons sometimes, and sometimes just for fear of the unknown. And we tend to isolate, right? I'm going to go and sit with people who look like me or act like me, or I know is a safe space. And even though we, you know, we had talked about before is people do that online, right? They find these like safe spaces, but even before online existed, people were doing that kind of in person where, you know, they're, you know, sitting all together, you know, there's a book about, I think it's called why do all the black kids sit together in the cafeteria? Hmm. It's the same phenomenon. Why, you know, why in group feels, you know, that they want to create a safe space. And so, you know, part of it, and we talk about like this idea with generational differences is being able to, um, you know, cross those those barriers and say, we probably have a whole lot more in common than, than we don't. And whatever we don't have in common, that's a value. That's something where we can learn from. Yeah. But I think there's a scary element of saying, I'm going to go to that bar and listen to Garth Brooks. And, you know, the same thing I've heard, you know, very similar with international students experience with um, even domestic students who are maybe someone from a small town who's going to school in New York City. And it's like, oh, I don't yeah. even want to, I don't, oh, how, what is this subway thing? I don't want to get on the subway. I'm very scared. And so really being kind of, I guess you'd say out of your element. And I think that's part of the beauty of the college experience is, you know, particularly if you're on campus or you've moved or relocated to a new community is that you're also getting that experience of being able to say, all right, I'm going to figure out kind of who I am, who I want to be around, but I also am going to expand my perspectives and worldviews because I'm in a brand new place and I need to do that or else, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, not only make the best of this experience, but I'm also going to miss out on really great opportunities. Yeah, because, you know, the best part is that you're on a safe campus, but you can kind of experience the world out. You can go to the beach, Mm -hmm. you can go out to the nightlife, you can go out camping, but you can always come back to the safety of knowing that your advisor's there on Monday saying, you know, uh, is everything okay in life? Like, you know, I've had someone in the disability office who would uh, really look out for me and she's like, yeah, I think your drinking's getting a bit much and you need to submit the paper. So it was Mm -hmm. kind of blending both worlds, which I think was fascinating and really helped me, you know, because otherwise you kind of go to a therapist in the real world or you go to a college professor but you kind of have two different perspectives and two different responsibilities but I think this this meshing of the two and you kind of have this sense of you know what um, it it's not demonized at the same time it's all about growing up and all about development I think that's a really nice thing to have and rely on as a thing at that as, as a system at that age. Well, absolutely. And, and the, the key part, too, that, you know, a lot of people say, you know, do universities coddle students too much? Um, you know, that's an interesting question. You know, the, the university experience is supposed to be a stepping stone into adulthood. Um, and it is supposed to be a safe space where you can mess up. If you fail one class, you know, you're not necessarily kicked out of the university. You're given yeah. resources and expectations to improve. And so the idea is that there is a little bit of fail safe stuff there, but it's not a hundred percent. You, you know, you do have to show up, you do have to do the work. And so it, it really is kind of, again, like a stepping stone. So you have that safe place to try things out, to, 
experience um, new endeavors with with you know lower risks than if you were just sort of out in the post college world. Mm. Um, you have an opportunity to be around people who might help and support you, including staff that get paid to do that. And so yeah. it's the perfect time to push your boundaries and to take you know mental, emotional, intellectual, and even physical risks in your life to be able to have a space to fall back on in case something doesn't go the way you know you were hoping. No, absolutely. It's so important. It's like, a, it's like a dry run before you get into, you know, responsibility. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, before, you know, I, I, it's getting late for you. I'm gonna, before we wrap up, I just want to ask you uh, not to make a prediction or a forecast, but uh, what what might the next 10 years look like with the way we work, the way um, we navigate? Because I've, you know, as, 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 a, as, a, as a layman, I, I see a lot of people saying screw it to the traditional way of working, the traditional way mm-hmm. of being employed, the traditional way of saving money, the traditional way of saving up for uh, the dream home, uh, the way they, they look at travel, the way they look at um, their environment. So what may be, uh, what may we expect when it comes to um, how Gen Z will navigate this, um, this, this, this decade? Yeah, a great question. I'm actually working on a book on that right now, which is really, oh, really neat. Um, what a leading. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, the, you know, a lot of people say, well, the pandemic changed a lot of things. And, you know, and that sort of remains to be seen. I, I think for for many folks, um, the idea was that the pandemic accelerated changes that were already going to happen in society in terms of the workforce. There was already a push for more remote work. There was already a push for more flexible scheduling. Um, there was, you know, already a push for more work-life balance, things like that. And um, and, and meaningful work, right? Like, and fair wages. And, you know, we've seen these movements building up and building up and building up, but the pandemic just pushed us over the edge with a lot of that. And, um, I think we're at a point of reckoning and we've seen it come out in a couple of different ways. Some people have seen it as the great resignation where some people, you know, it's like this idea that I don't want to be doing this. I don't want to be trapped into this awful job. I can't do it. I'm leaving or mm. I can't work at this workplace and I'm leaving. Uh, some people are leaving industries in droves because they're not getting paid a fair wage. And these industries are just floundering and they can't figure out how to survive. Um, some people are, are, um, you know, leaving and then they're regretting leaving and they're coming back. Mm. Um, we're seeing people who, you know, were doing remote work, were promised remote work and are now telling, being told they have to come back to the office. And now they're yeah. being kind of, now they're resentful about that and may end up leaving or leaving the, you know, the industry altogether. So I think we're at a point of like a great reckoning right now where there's a lot of people that are just clarifying, how do I want to spend my work life? Um, Gen Z is really led by values and meaningful work over money. Um, I mean, it's a generation that's concerned about financial security in general, but not at the expense of being completely miserable and trapped in, you know, in a job that they don't like. And they want to mm. know that what they're doing is going to make a difference for the world. Uh, they don't want to just sort of, you know, armchair, you know, a social change movement from home. They want to know that what they're doing is creating positive and meaningful social change in their work lives. Yeah. And, and so they're going to leave jobs that don't do that. Um, but you're also seeing that sort of spreading to, you know, millennials and Gen Xers in particular. Baby boomers are sort of on their way out. They're just sort of counting down the days for many of them. Some are most are already retired. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what the interesting thing is. So over the next 10 years, I think this just great reckoning that's happening is going to, in, in my thought, in my, and sometimes in my hope, is it's going to reset. It's mm-hmm. going to reset the way that we see work, that we don't, you know, we don't, live to work we we work to live and that our identities our professional identities are 
integrated with our personal identities, which we can't help. But that doesn't mean that our time is just we're working around the clock. You know, I mean, that we have to go into like a terrible office to do it. And I just think that, that Gen Z is going to push that envelope. And some of them can't right now. They, they just don't have the financial means to say no to a kind of a job that they're not interested in because, you know, it's a tough time. But yeah. I, I they have the the wherewithal to do that. And so once they get some more footing and we get, you know, kind of a little bit more past, you know, the initial pandemic phases, I, I think we're going to see them take more agency in that and say, I'm not doing that. I'm going to go mm. freelance. I'm going to go start my own business, but I'm not doing that. Which is a very powerful place to be. Um, and I think it's a very hopeful place to um, be as well because you kind of have people who are uh, considerate, people who are thinking about uh, the the group beyond just themselves. And it's exciting um, if it goes and pans out the way you see it because I think we might have a kind of a more meaningful society as opposed to just a rat race based uh, uh, material gathering and kind of status based, you know, system where people are just uh, thinking about their own success and their own at the cost of anything. So let's hope it pans out the way it does. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> uh, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time, Corey. And uh, if people want to find your work and read your books, where can they head over? Uh, they can find me at CoreyCMiller.com, which is C-O-R-E-Y-S-E-E-M-I-L-L-E-R.com. You can find links to my books, uh, podcasts, um, articles, resources, all sorts of goodies on there, um, you know, to help particularly around ideas around leadership, around kind of young people, Gen Z. Uh, there's a lot of great resources there. Brilliant. I, I, I think uh, thank you for uh, sharing your ideas, for um shedding light on some things that we kind of just without understanding we kind of point fingers so i think this has been really good for me to kind of understand this generation and kind of make informative decisions and opinions based on that so thanks and on behalf of everyone listening thank you for being here great thanks so much for having me my pleasure Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.